Um, if you have your Bibles, we'll turn to, to Luke chapter 20. Uh, we're going to look today at, at verses uh, 27 through 47. While you turn there, let me say, um, Denise called me last night, or actually we saw each other at a wedding, and she told me that she was going to change the offertory hymn to Christ the Lord is Risen Today, and she asked me to announce that, and of course more than an hour passed, so I forgot to do that, but uh, now is a great time to do it, because it's a great time to remind you that as we go through our worship services, these things are not haphazard, uh, the, what we're doing is not just random things, but, but they are doing a wonderful job of, of Great job of leading us in worship, leading us towards uh, the reading of God's word, particularly today as you look at the songs that we've sung, uh, God is leading us here uh, to worship him, and now he is calling us to worship him through his word. So let's hear his word read together. It says, there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children... The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for her brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will this woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. That the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces, and the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray now that you would open our hearts and open our minds to behold wondrous things in this, your word. Holy Spirit, meet with us, loom our hearts so that we can understand this word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It's on. Yes, sir. The God of the living. Uh, Well, again, uh, the circumstances uh, that have played out in the life of our church over the past week, uh, with those circumstances in mind, it would seem uh, that the passage before us this morning Uh, is one that that is certainly relevant to and also greatly needed by each of us today. Uh, Now, truthfully, that would be the case no matter the the circumstances in our lives uh, because the question of what happens after death is one uh, that has fascinated and perplexed uh, humanity in in almost every age. Uh, But we know all too well uh, that when death comes and it knocks at our door, Uh, when we have experienced the loss of loved ones as we have done this week, 
the questions and the need for answers, they become all the more urgent. They become all the more pressing. And so it is a great kindness of our God. It is a great kindness in his providence that he would put this passage before us today. A passage about everlasting life. A passage about the resurrection. Now, uh, you'll recall that, that having arrived in Jerusalem where he openly declared himself to be the king, uh, Jesus' enemies since that point have sort of ramped up their efforts to, to discredit him. That they've ramped up their efforts to, to kill him, really. Uh, and so we saw in 19 and in verse 39 that the Pharisees are angry because he accepts the worships of his disciples. That they are angry with what Jesus has done. In 19 and in verse 47, the chief priests and the scribes, they, they sought to destroy him because he cleansed the temple. In 20 and verse, uh, verses 1 through 8, uh, that same group, they, they challenge his authority with hopes of discrediting him. And then last week in verses 19 to 26, the scribes, they tried to catch him uh, by drawing him into sort of a, a no-win debate uh, over politics and religion. Now, in each of these cases, Jesus has been able to respond in such a way as to uh, show, that, that show his critics uh, that, that he was greater. Right? He's been able to, to stump his critics. He's often even amazed his critics, so much so that we might expect them to sort of give up, right? Uh, to just say, yes, this one, this Jesus is greater than we are, uh, and so we will try to, to take a different route. We'll try to take a different approach. But at least today, uh, we recognize that there was one more group, uh, one more group that, that would try their hand at stumping this great Savior, and it's this group known as the Sadducees. Now, often when we think about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, we kind of lump them all together in one group under this sort of Jewish umbrella, and they were that to some degree or another. The Bible often groups them together that way. But really, when it gets right down to it, that they were very different groups, very different in their beliefs and their basic understanding of what the Bible said, or in their case, what the Torah said to them. Uh, politically, you'll remember that the Pharisees, uh, they hated the Roman government. Uh, their goal was to try to overthrow the Roman government at all costs, to have the Messiah sit on the throne. They wanted to be rid of Rome altogether. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they were satisfied with Rome. Uh, they were sort of the political elite among the Jewish population. Uh, and so they were satisfied with the way things were. They wanted to continue on with the way things were. And so you can imagine that the Jewish people, uh, they were not real fond of the Sadducees in that way. Uh, a couple weeks ago when we saw Jesus cleanse the temple, I mistakenly said that it was the Pharisees whom he was dealing with there, but in fact it would have been the Sadducees whom he was dealing with there. They would have been the ones who were involved with the, the, what was going on in the temple. Uh, they would have been getting the, the benefits from that. And so you have politically this group who is very satisfied in this life. Theologically, the, the Pharisees, uh, as you know, they, they held both to the written word of God and also to the oral tradition of their forefathers. And so they end up with all of these laws, like there are books of laws that were passed down from generation to generation. And often that's where Jesus attacks them, right? They have these laws of men that are not actually the law of God. 
Uh, and so they are very committed to these things. The, the Sadducees, on the other hand, they only held as authoritative what was written in the Word, or at least their interpretation of what was written in the Word, which is a, a very key distinction to make. And so you have these two groups, uh, and most likely these two groups would have often been at odds with one another. And that was particularly true with regards to the doctrine that was most associated with the Sadducees, and that was their denial of a bodily resurrection. Uh, so committed to this doctrine were they uh, uh, that in Acts chapter 23, you read of Paul there. We don't have time to, to go through it in detail, but you remember that Paul there is on trial before the Sanhedrin, and he is... Uh, probably getting ready to be executed. And so he kind of throws a, a ticking time bomb in the mix of all of them. He recognizes that there's Pharisees there and there's Sadducees. And he says to the group in the midst of all of it, uh, in chapter 23, beginning in verse 6, he says, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. He recognizes the group that is before him, and to throw things into turmoil, he says what he says, and that's exactly what happens. In fact, it became so heated that, that violence ensued. Paul is rushed out because they were afraid they were going to kill Paul for what he said. And so all, I say all of that to, to point out that, that it, this was a, a heated, highly debated topic. Now the reason why they were so committed to it is hard to tell. Maybe it was because, you know, even now people debate whether the, the resurrection is found in the Old Testament. Now we're going to see today that we believe it is there, but even scholars today debate it. So maybe the Sadducees really didn't see it in the Old Testament. But I would submit to you that it was far more their political reasons why they held to this belief more than it was their theological reasons. This was a group of people who were very, very satisfied in the world. They had no reason to look forward to hope in the future. They had no reason to look forward to eternity. They had what they needed now. They had everything they needed in this life, and so they were committed to keeping the status quo. Now, we're way too early to start applying things, but friends, this is... this needs to be applied to our hearts. In more ways than one, we are like these Sadducees, especially in our nation, especially where we are right now. We are very satisfied with this world. We are very satisfied with the things that we have here, so much so that we have often lost the joy of what is to come. We've often lost that, that longing for the future, for that heavenly city, right? Now, certainly, when we face what we have faced this week, that, that longing comes back again. But too often, we find ourselves, like these Sadducees, ready to, to just keep the status quo. So we have this, this challenge before us. And I realized that, that all of that was a long way around to, to getting to our starting point. I was informed this week, by not anybody here, that, that my introductions are far too long, and, and I didn't do anything to fix that today, so I apologize for that. But what I do want us to see here 
is that encountering the Sadducees' challenge, Jesus is not only once again demonstrating his wisdom and authority over the powerful and wise of this world, but he also here gives hope. He gives hope to, to any who are questioning what happens after this life. Maybe more than that for all of us here. He's giving us hope for those loved ones that, that, that we have lost. Those loved ones who have gone on into the next life resting in Christ. Jesus reminds us here what awaits those kind of people. Those who are resting in Him. We worship a God who is not the God of the dead, but He is the God of the living. So let's look at it together and let's see what he has. First in this passage, I want you to notice a, a ridiculous question. A ridiculous question. You see it there in verses 27 through 33. Let me just take the time to, to refresh your mind on it. It says, uh, there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven. And they left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Now, I say it's ridiculous, and, I, and I'm going to explain why I say it's ridiculous in just a moment. Uh, but for now, I want you to recognize that this is a question that at least for the Sadducees, it is rooted in their theological position, the one that we have already mentioned before, that they don't believe in a resurrection from the dead, and they believe here they have presented a scenario uh, which proves that point beyond a shadow of a doubt. And if that's the case, if they can prove that there is no resurrection of the dead, then they're going to show themselves to be superior to Jesus, right? Because clearly, throughout his ministry... Jesus has taught a bodily resurrection. He has, in fact, raised people from the dead. So clearly Jesus believes that, that this is what's coming. And so their, their, their object here is to disprove him. Uh, but I say it's ridiculous because when we begin to, to sort of dig into their theology, uh, that's where things come a, a bit outlandish for us. Uh, you know, we, we read this and we wonder in what world... One woman could and why she would ever be married to seven brothers who died in quick succession. After about number three, all of us would have said, all right, look, y'all going to have to try something different. You, something here is not right. You're going to have to go find another husband and you're going to have to go find another wife. Y'all going to have to call this whole thing off, right? It sounds ridiculous to our ears that even something like this would happen. And we need to recognize that even, even for them, that was sort of the point, right? That they're wanting to make a, an argument that is so ridiculous that when everybody hears it, they say, well, obviously, this, is, this, is, this is, can't be, right? That they're trying to, to get to Jesus this way. But we do need to also recognize that this is an argument rooted in biblical truth. And as such, it's a very dangerous question because it does have some level of truth to it. If you turn to Deuteronomy 25, and you don't have to turn there, but you'll find in verses 5 and 6 this idea that we know as Leverite marriage. 
Uh, and so the, the idea was God, in his law, gave this command that a man, if he dies without a son, without an heir, that his brother should marry his wife in the hopes that, that they would produce an heir for the brother who has died, right? Again, that, that sounds foreign to us. That sounds almost crazy to us. But it was a good gift of God that he gave to his people. What he was trying to do is protect widows. He was trying to protect the name of people who were deceased. He was trying to protect family land. It, it was a good gift that God had given. It's the same idea that we find in the book of Ruth, right? Now, it's somewhat of a different scenario, but the, the basis of what happens with Ruth and Boaz is Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6, okay? So we see that, that this is a good thing, provides security. And so it's outlandish, but, but given God's law, given the Sadducees' understanding of that law and, and of other things, we see that the scenario before us is not one that would have been impossible. And so their challenge is presented to Christ. And we can sort of see them like the challengers before, you know, congratulating themselves, patting each other on the back, saying, hey, we, we've got him this time. We, we have presented such a, a problem that, that not even Jesus, not even he can figure this out. It's a foolproof scheme. But as with the other questions we've seen, uh, what we'll soon find is that the foolproof interpretation that they thought they had all of those were actually built on false assumptions. They, they were built on false interpretations. And so we have a, a ridiculous question. Secondly, in this passage, I want you to notice a revealing answer. And again, we'll, we'll come back and pick up on the particulars of the answer in just a moment. But, but for now, just notice the, the overall thrust of Jesus' answer there in verse 34. He says, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. In other words, what the Sadducees believed, what the sons of this age assumed they knew about the age to come, was in fact all wrong. Rather than, than all of life, with all of its current relationships and nuances continuing on as it always has into eternity, what Jesus reveals to us here is that some things, things like marriage, will be different in the new heavens and in the new earth. Now again, I just want to pause this for a moment because I think that should be an important warning and corrective to many of us today with all of Scripture, but particularly with the topic that is before us. All of us are fascinated with this idea of eternity. All of us are fascinated with the, with the idea of what will come next, and we often spend our time in fanciful, unhelpful, false speculation speculation apart from God's word on what that will be like when we get there. Now, admittedly, there, there are many things that, that Scripture does not tell us, and it does not tell us a whole lot in this area. And that can be frustrating for sure, but we need to, to hear the warning 
that Jesus gives over in, in 45 through 47 about the, the Sadducees, these scribes who hold themselves up as wise, who walk around like they have all the answers, like they know all things. He says, beware of those people. Because they will receive greater condemnation. We must handle the word carefully. We must divide it carefully. It's not our place to, to speculate on the things that, that God has not revealed clearly to us. And I know that's a frustrating thing to say. Believe me, I know. But what I want you to see, particularly with this topic, is that what he has revealed to us is glorious. What he has revealed to us is sufficient for us. It gives us more than we could really ever consume if we would just consider what he has said. And so that brings us to the particulars of what Jesus has said here. And I've taken this from Philip Ryken's commentary because it was so good, I felt like I just needed to give it to you just like he did. And so the first thing that I want you to notice here is that as Jesus talks about the resurrection, he reveals something to us about relationships. He reveals something to us about marriage in eternity says there will be no marriage in heaven. Now this could strike us uh, one of two ways. For some, and I don't mean this jokingly, I mean this with all honesty. For some, this is good news, right? You know, if you are, are in a difficult marriage, if you are, are trying to stick out a difficult marriage, then, then this is good news to you, right? Things in heaven w will be different. For others, for a completely different reason, this is a precious truth. You know, if you are single here and you feel the weight of societal and family and church pressure to go and find the one, hurry up and go get married, hurry up and find the one, this is good news to you. Certainly, marriage is important. And as a church, we must protect it at all costs. But we're reminded here that it is a temporary institution. And so it is not the end-all or the be-all of Christian life. God is sovereign in all that he does, and some he gives to marriage, and some he does not give to marriage. And friends, that's okay. In his, in his plan, in his sovereignty, he does all things well. And so, for some, what Jesus says here is good news. On the other hand, uh, for those who have been happily married for many years... The, the idea of eternity without that relationship, uh, it may seem sad. It may seem unappealing to you. But I would remind you that in the grander scheme of redemptive history, what is it that, that marriage really points us to? What is it continually in Scripture that marriage is pointing us to? In Ephesians 5, right, Paul talks about this. It's a great mystery. But marriage is teach, teaching us something about our relationship with Christ. That it's really pointing us ahead to that relationship with Christ. And so in eternity, it will be Jesus who is our complete satisfaction. It will be Jesus who we will cleave to, even as he cleaves to us, as we are commanded to do now with our husband or with our, our wife. In short, all of our relationships, they will be different there because they will all be subsumed under the lordship, under the complete sufficiency of Christ. 
We will need nothing else. Now, that does not mean that, that we won't need each other. We will, we will be able to love each other in a way that we have never been able to love each other here because we will be loving God the way that we should love God. But friends, he will be all. And that's good news. So relationships will be different. Secondly, Jesus teaches us here something about merit in eternity. Who will get into eternity? Those who are considered, or maybe a better translation, those who are counted worthy to be there. That leaves us with the obvious question, how can you be counted worthy for eternity? And the answer is only by the declaration of God through the shed blood, the imputed righteousness of Jesus, his son. Only Jesus is worthy of eternity. Only he is worthy. And so the only way we can find ourselves there is if we somehow are resting in his worthiness. Somehow resting in him. And friends, that's what union with Christ is all about. We believe in this doctrine called union of Christ. That, that, that Paul talks about in Galatians 2.20. He talks about over and over and over again that we are found in him. And because we are found in him, we will merit, he will merit eternity for us, right? Thirdly, Jesus tells us something here about immortality. Like the angels who are immortal creatures, our existence there will be everlasting. Uh, no more change. No more aches and pains, uh, no more old age, no, no more cancers or illnesses, no more death. Simply and gloriously eternal life, eternal happiness in the presence of our King. Now, I'm tempted to stop here for the rest of the time, but given, again, the events of this week, this is good news. This is good news. If you are mourning today someone that you love, and if that loved one was resting in Christ, then this is the reality that they know. They are with Jesus, and all is well. And he will not forsake them. He will not let them go. He had got them safely home, and that will be true for all. All of eternity. This is our hope. This is what we are resting in. This, this truth of immortality. In Christ, we will live with Him forever. Hallelujah. Fourthly, we see here the truth about our inheritance. He calls us sons of the resurrection, children of God, joint heirs with our elder brother Christ, and as such, through God's glorious mercy and kindness, we will receive a share of what is rightly His. We, we will receive a share of what is rightly Jesus's. Most importantly, we know that because we are sons, God will one day raise us, raise us to newness of life, just as he did for Christ. Just as he resurrected him from the grave. He is the, the first fruits, right? Jesus is the first fruits from the grave. And now we follow our Savior. Just as God raised him, he will raise us. That, that is our inheritance. Jesus teaches us that here. Now, I realize for all four of those points, we have skimmed through them rather quickly. 
But at the heart of it all, I hope you can see that the true joy of eternity is that it is an eternity with who? It's an eternity with God. It's an eternity with the one who gave himself up for us. Forever, we will behold him with unveiled faces. We will see him face to face. And truly, that is the sum total of what we need to know. Now, we began this by saying that we all are so curious about what is to come. And I get that. But the sum total of all we need to know about eternal life is Jesus is there. And that's where we want to be. Wherever he is, we want to be with him. That's what God has assured us. In his word, in this passage, he is assuring us that he will get us to our Savior. What more do we need to know? Nothing. That's it. We will see Jesus. And so we see here uh, a revealing answer. We've had a ridiculous question, a revealing answer. And then thirdly and finally in this passage, I want you to notice resounding proof. Resounding proof. Now, for the Sadducees, the, the idea of all of this may have sounded perfectly good, but they would have wanted proof from the Word. And so notice quickly how Jesus gives them that, and he gives it to them in two ways. First, he appeals to Moses, whom they would have uh, held in the highest regard. It was the, the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible, that they would have appealed to most often. So Jesus does that here. He turns to Exodus chapter 3, uh, to the burning bush, and specifically in verse 6 of that chapter, you remember that as God addresses Moses, how does he do it? He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Presently, I am. He's not saying, I was the God, I will be the God, but even now, I am their God. Jesus says, do you not see? He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of those who are living. Now, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died hundreds of years before. Hundreds. And yet, God could say, I am their God, even now. And friends, what a wonderful truth that is. Because who was it that God made some of his most glorious promises to? Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob. And all three of those men died. Did they die receiving all of those promises, the full scope of it? The answer is no, they did not die receiving the full scope. Abraham had not entered into the promised land when he died. He did not receive it. He was not yet the father of many nations when he died. And so did the promises fail? Did the promises to them fail? No, the God of the living... He was keeping his own. He was keeping them even into eternity so that they might see those great promises fulfilled. And they might see it in whom? They might see it in the one promised in Psalm 110. And that's what Jesus quotes uh, there in verses 41 through 44. Uh, he says, the, the Lord, this is David speaking. And, and Jesus gives them sort of, they've been asking him questions. And so now he says, all right, now it's my turn to ask you a question. He presents them uh, with a riddle. David is speaking here, and he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies 
your footstool. This is a messianic psalm. They, they recognize that it was about the Messiah. But Jesus says, how can that be? How can David refer to this one as Lord, who is also his son? Well, if you go back and read this, uh, the, the Lord, so David says the Lord, and that first one is Yahweh. Uh, in Hebrew, it is Yahweh. It is Jehovah. He says, the Lord said to my Lord, the second one is the, the Hebrew word Adonai. So two, two words that we would often uh, use to describe God, that were used in the Old Testament to describe God, but two different terms. And very purposefully, David uses two different terms here. The, Yahweh said to my Adonai. Now, what, is, what is David getting to here? What, what's, what's the idea? How can, how can this be? only way it could be is through the God-man, the, the one who was both the second person of the Trinity and who also became flesh, the one who will be raised, resurrected no less, to the right hand of his Father so that all his enemies may be as a footstool to his feet, as, as David says there. David whether he realized it or not, he is looking ahead here to Jesus, to the resurrected one, to the one who will rule over all things. In other words, Christ here is not just declaring the reality of who he is, but he's also declaring the reality of what is to come. He himself, as we said, will be the first fruits, the first one raised to eternity. And from there, he rules over all things. He will bring to completion all the eternal plan that he has for his people, for all those who are resting in him. Friends, again, we worship today a God of the living, a God who has redeemed us through the, 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 the resurrection, through the death, the burial, the, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son. And so, we can have assurance we can know, uh, even if it's like looking through a shadow, we can know what's coming, and we can have peace. Peace for Nadine today. Peace for, for Mr. Friday Curry today. Peace for that loved one that you have lost that died in Christ. We can have peace for them. Because Jesus is alive. Because He is alive and resurrected to the, to the right hand of the Father. Because He rules eternally. We know that that promise of resurrection for us, for eternity, for us, it will not fail. It's what joy, what hope there is in Christ. Do you have that hope today? Are you trusting in Him? I encourage you, join the, the procession of His people who are patiently awaiting His return with the sure knowledge that He will return that he will get us safely home. Either way, we will see him face to face. It's written there on the top of your bulletin. We read this at the gravesite. I read it yesterday. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Friends, eternity awaits. Will you spend it with Jesus? Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for the assurance that we have. Thank you for the promise of eternal life. We thank you for how in this passage Jesus reminds us of that truth. And we look forward to that day where we will behold our Savior face to face. Look forward to the day that he will return, he will make us new. Uh, but Lord, until then, we are so thankful that we can entrust ourselves, we can entrust our loved ones to his care. I know that, that he gets them safely home and that he will not lose any that are his. We rejoice in that today. We rest in it. We praise you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.